through the course of design, ask a set of what if problems. What if we could apply an AI algorithm to do this thing that requires some amount of sensory intelligence, perhaps, or analytical intelligence, but largely is something that can be learned with a corpus of data that we can collect or already have access to. And now, by virtue of us automating that, that sensory action or that sort of analytical action, can short circuit this process, this workflow that this individual is engaged in and give them that time necessary to either do things faster, do things earlier. And if it's a risk mitigation solution, giving them a greater runway to respond appropriately to that risk. Welcome to the Digital Threshold Podcast, where we explore all the ways modern venues and facilities are reimagining their arrival experience. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Mahesh Chaturisi, CTO of Motorola Solutions. Um, I've had a chance to talk to Mahesh a few times, and he is going to be very enlightening for all of us today. We've got a lot of really good topics to cover. What I, where I want to start, though, is, Mahesh, we could equally be talking to you about the COVID vaccine today as we are about AI. So I'm very interested if you could share a little bit of your background and how you steered away from something that might have had you talking about COVID and more talking about AI and analytics. Sure. Um, my, during my early days or early, early days of my, my career, I was delusional and I thought that I, was, I really loved biology uh, and so, uh, I actually spent some time at the National Institutes of Health uh, working on immunology um, and got into the mathematical modeling uh, for immune systems uh, and then realized that I was really good at killing cells uh, and uh, wet science was just not for me and uh, eventually decided that the mathematics was actually kind of more interesting and so went more in the computer science and uh, and, and mathematics side of the world as opposed to uh, uh, the biology side of the world. So yes, uh, uh, I did spend a fair amount of time in immunology. Um, uh, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be competent. Ah, great. And so are you generally more hopeful now than you were a few weeks ago with all these recent announcements about the vaccines and, and the performance in the trials? Absolutely. I think um, it's, it's incredible how sort of... Uh, uh, these multiple entities, um, especially in collaboration with uh, the Nas National Institute of Infectious uh, Diseases, uh, has done such an amazing job in, in understanding uh, uh, the, the nature of, of COVID, uh, the messenger RNA-based uh, uh, approaches that Moderna and some others have uh, pursued. Super promising, and I think I I'm, I'm certainly very hopeful that uh, this, is a, this is a good outcome for us uh, it, unfortunately, by the time everything rolls out, it'll be close to the middle of next year, I think. Uh, but that said, uh, this is uh, the, the, the underlying technology here, uh, and I'm speaking to my bias in technology here, but uh, the notion of mRNA, messenger RNA-based vaccines being effectively software that can reconfigure uh, our immune system to, to respond to diseases like COVID, and this being uh, hopefully a uh, an approach we can replicate as future pandemics or, or future potential uh, pandemics come to the uh, forefront. I think, uh, to me, that's that's very comforting, and I think we all should be uh, comforted that um, hopefully we've learned lots of good lessons from this really hard time. Right. Yeah, and it's been interesting as some people have said this seems to have happened so quickly. But I think a little bit to your point is there's been a lot of work on the platform, on the essentially the technology yes. platform. 
and this this vaccine sort of sits on that platform. Uh, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. This is you know it's uh, um, the things that that seem like they take a minute to produce usually. Uh, have uh, years of preparation that that go into it in, in advance. So, so I think that the fact that the the thing that that the machinery that produced this uh, can can be reproduced for other things as well. I think that is the compelling thing here, uh, and also you know obviously very promising for the vaccine side for COVID. So I'd like to stick on the technology area, maybe transfer okay. out of the wet lab into the, the zeros <laughs> and ones a little bit. Sure. Um, which will make both of us more comfortable, I'm sure, in that domain. Um, there's so many different terms out there. There's so many different technologies. Um, there's AI, there's machine learning, there's computer vision, there's big data, there's, big, there's analytics. Um, my head spins, frankly. <laughs> I know a lot of our heads spin. Can you just untangle it a little bit? You know, what are some of these things and what is the difference among some of these things and how should we think about them, at least as areas of technology? Sure. Um, and I think uh, if I were to propose some sort of formal definition, it would probably be quite contentious, at least in the, in, in the academic and perhaps even industrial world of things. But roughly uh, where there's broad agreement is that um, machine learning are the core algorithmic capabilities that power AI. Uh, uh, and artificial intelligence, intelligence is really what, what happens uh, during the execution of a system. So effectively, uh, when cameras or when systems see things, uh, detect objects, respond to what the objects are doing uh, in the scene, that is artificial intelligence, but that ability to detect and the ability for that system to adapt to the environment is powered by machine learning algorithms. So, so a way to think about it is while artificial intelligence uh, is potentially what we do, the, what, what we act, uh, machine learning is are all the chemicals in our brain that are sort of making it possible. The neurons uh, firing, uh, the, the the interconnectivity between uh, elements in our brain that that the formation of that interconnectivity is effectively powered by machine learning. Um, and so that's at least at, at that level, that's how I separate those two things. Um, big data uh, is is more, I, I would say, as the name suggests, it is the thing that uh, AI uh, applies to. So and the, the, this thing, the bigness of this data is really characterized by the volume, the velocity, and the variety of data uh, that hits any artificial intelligence system. So it's more of a, a characteristic of what AI can be applied to uh, versus AI itself. Uh, and so I think that, that's how I would, I would characterize big data. And lastly, you asked about analytics. I think analytics is really the outcome, right? So uh, uh, somebody who's interested in business intelligence, who wants to understand a customer's journey, journey through a facility, uh, asking that question and the analysis that goes behind it to be able to answer that question through visuals, through uh, dashboards, through uh, any sort of uh, set of metrics, uh, the derivation of that, that's really analytics uh, that could leverage AI, uh, but uh, is the outcome uh, of that process. That's, that's very helpful. That's probably one of the most compelling and and uh, logical, for, for me at least, um, explanations we've seen. So thank you very much for that. So, so you spent a chunk of time at Carnegie Mellon academically exploring these areas. And since then you have spent time professionally, essentially productizing um, yes. the technology in the areas. Can you describe how these technologies are manifesting themselves 
in the real world with real customers, right? We've, there's so many different um, academic aspects and deep technical aspects of them, but yeah. what's, what's happening with them? How are they, how are they manifesting themselves in, in the real world environment? Sure, so um, I think AI, when it, especially when it comes to um, understanding audio in terms of speech, uh, understanding video uh, of all kinds, um, has been evolving now over many, many decades uh, at, at different levels of, uh, I think, performance and capability. Um, probably in the past 10 years, one of the key enablers uh, has been the development of, of a new, uh, perhaps not uh, to call it a new type of processor is not the right word. Uh, it, it is really an application of something that existed before, uh, GPUs, graphical processing units, uh, but the, their capacity to do large vector operations very quickly, transitioning that from the world of graphics, uh, from the world of gaming, from the world of uh, having, I, I think, a, a very powerful display uh, and a user interface, that moving into the world of AI, where many similar computations exist, uh, has taken something where typically these algorithms that were quite powerful, but were not real time in nature, uh, or not even close to being real time, suddenly becoming something that, that could actually operate in real time. Or uh, those that were very computationally intensive, even if not real time, that, that because of that com the, in, the intensiveness of, uh, of what was required there, uh, them being um, not practical for many applications, GPUs now enabling that uh, more widely, I think, has made this quite powerful as well. And so a lot of the algorithmic developments um, through the 90s and through, through uh, the early part of 2000s, where at one point neural networks were considered to be like, uh, you know, yesterday's technology, suddenly saw like a huge resurgence because of uh, GPUs. That combined with the availability of data. So machine learning, the performance of machine learning is, a, is, uh, is, is directly proportional to the data that you have access to. Uh, and I think storage becoming cheaper, uh, network bandwidth becoming uh, uh, cheaper, the ability to collect data uh, becoming, uh, I think, more practical, that acted as a fuel uh, that powered all these algorithms to develop further and, and actually reach their performance potential and becoming practical through the processor technology that has come out. So now what used to be a speech recognition solution uh, that used to require uh, multiple Intel Xeon processors to run, uh, you can whip out your iPhone or you can whip out your, uh, your Android device and speak to it and with dictation. And a lot of that computation can actually run right on that edge device uh, and be real time. Uh, you can uh, leverage AR as an example through the camera on your phone and that can work in real time. Those same processors now run on cameras on IoT devices of various sorts. So increasingly what we're seeing is that there's this ambient intelligence that is now being powered with AI largely because of this new processor paradigm that is leveraging an evolving set of AI tools that have come up in the background. So all the things that we're doing on our phones, all the things that we're doing um, when we log into our bank, uh, when we use our credit card for fraud detection. Um, there are so many elements of our everyday lives where that data are being analyzed on a regular basis, anomalies are being uh, determined, uh, things that, that could affect personalization to give us a better sense of service. 
all of those factors are things that are around today, have evolved over the past many days. And, you know, it's ambient. We don't particularly pay a lot of attention to it, but it's all AI, it's all machine learning. And that's the substrate upon which, you know, we're building a lot of other things, including camera technology and such. Right, right. Interesting. And I, I, the question I get a lot is when we talk about our products and having sort of AI in them, is it, is it replacing people or is it helping people? So as you think about sort of the use of AI, um, certainly in software and other technologies have been to automate certain things, um, sometimes yeah. to make processes better or faster. But when yeah. you think about sort of AI and that set of technologies, how do you think about it relative to its impact on people? Uh, so uh, I think what, what AI today is very good at is taking mechanical tasks um, that are perhaps complex in and of themselves, but really mechanical in nature, and being able to do it in a way that is more efficient than, than us humans would be able to do. Um, and so think of it as um, uh, counting the number of people who enter a, a, a building. Uh, it used to be that someone at the door stood with a clicker and kept clicking, uh, uh, counting the number of people who came in. That is something that's perhaps done more effectively uh, by by, by an, uh, a sensor plus an AI uh, solution of, of some sort. Um, there are diagnoses, uh, for example, uh, diagnoses of uh, X-rays, uh, radiological applications, uh, which are more complex than counting, uh, but it is actually mechanical where you're checking for certain sets of things and. Uh, Provably today, uh, AI-based systems uh, can actually reach a, a higher level of performance than many radiolog radiologists uh, uh, get uh, uh, along a multiple different fronts. And that sort of gives you two, I would say, very different categories of people uh, with different skill sets, different levels of skill sets, both of whom's jobs are either augmented or in some ways actually uh, uh, replaced by what by what humans do. But that said, um, humans are not static entities in terms of how we apply our intelligence. Uh, and artificial intelligence being able to augment a lot of the capabilities that humans have also, I think, is allowing us to focus on different sorts of problems, uh, problems that require um, capabilities that today AI does not have. And as AI perhaps encroaches into those capabilities as well, I, I consider human evolution to be something that also progresses along the same way. So at the end of the day, AI uh, with proper design, uh, I would say with uh, gives us a perspective into the world, augments our own capabilities, where ultimately I, I think of AI as augmenting human capabilities and opening up new things and roles uh, uh, in, the, in, uh, in the job market that do not exist today, while certainly certain jobs will probably go away, certain jobs will change in some manner. I think augmented intelligence with AI is going to be something that, that uh, increases the number of things or changes the number of things uh, that we humans will, will probably pay attention to and all hopefully for the better. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's interesting. And if I just take it down to some practical direct conversations I've had with customers about their security organizations and what are they doing with them, um, there's definitely a sixth sense that 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 security professionals have, whether it's former law yeah. enforcement or whatnot. When something just doesn't feel right, yeah. uh, that seems like something that's hard to automate. But if you take the other side of it, which is you're looking for a child that's lost with a red jacket and a black backpack, if you can. Yeah 
instead of having a team of people slowly looking through video, right, have that automated, you can, you know, use AI and technology for that and redeploy on those higher value areas. Is that something that you're, you're seeing or you're thinking about? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, um, uh, you know, Motorola has this long legacy of, uh, uh, of mission critical communications. Uh, we have law enforcement, we have uh, first responders of all kinds, people who, who uh, work in, uh, um, in enterprises, entertainment venues, stadiums, etc., who are all in the field, who are doing their jobs while they are um, actively doing many other things. Um, and uh, we see the connection between things like video and audio in a way where the capacity of AI to do the looking for you, focus human attention to say, okay, this is an, something, whatever is happening here is anom- anomalous potentially. There's an individual who's uh, in a location that they're not supposed to be. They're carrying something perhaps that they're not supposed to be. And that acts as a tap on the shoulder of that person in the field to say, hey, here's an early warning for you. Perhaps there's something that you're, you're not, it's not in your field of view right now, but warrants your attention. That allows that person who's doing many things at the same time to do everything as well as they possibly can by making taking that sort of very monotonous task of just watching, observing, and then calling out just the things that require attention, taking that and automating that piece. But once that attention is focused, it is that human intelligence that now determines whether that requires action or not. And we're doing that across the the spectrum. Uh, We have a a solution called Radio Alert um, that effectively connects what humans are seeing and taps the, uh, the shoulder of the person who's carrying that radio and says, hey, uh, uh, Mr. Security person, please look here uh, because this requires your attention. Maybe it's something very benign, but maybe it's something that, uh, that requires some action, but that is a decision that that human needs to make. And that's a decision that that human can make without actually having to stare at a bank of video monitors or whatever else. So very much as a consumer, I use my phone to see my calendar, to make a phone call, to enable the things I'm trying to do. You're talking about weaving technology into people's processes and intellect to augment, as you said earlier, what they're trying to do. Yes, I think we're entering an event-driven world, uh, right? So it's like uh, we're we're not, it's not the the age of watching TV and stumbling on something that is interesting for you to watch. It is the age of searching for what you want and watching that very precisely, right? Or getting an alert on your phone saying, ah, this there's something is now up that may interest you. Go watch this. We live in that world today. It's an event-driven world today. And I think security needs to evolve to that event-driven world as well. Right. So there's a lot of different technology we've talked about. We've talked about some use cases or applications, particularly in the security area and a little more broadly. Um, there's so many different places you could apply the technology. There's so many different ways yep. to productize it for people. How does your organization figure out where best to apply this technology and and what it specifically needs to do? Absolutely. Um, I think the so often, especially in in the AI world and in the IoT world, uh, we we get tracked by this notion that, hey, we have this really cool tool. Let's go find a problem to solve with this tool. Uh, And that often leads to very suboptimal solutions. the way we approach the problem is very much a design-led approach. Uh, and what I mean by design-led approach is uh, we actually have a human factors team uh, that uh, that job shadows our customers. Um, 
and really watches what they do, interacts with them uh, without necessarily affecting the way they are do- going about their day-to-day job, but really constructing a, a journey, a customer journey. Um, and across that customer journey, we map out what are the jobs uh, to be done are. Uh, and for each of those jobs to be done, we ask the question, what is it today that that person may just be doing very mechanically or perhaps is doing as, as part of something that they've done all the time and hasn't really thought of it as a problem. But if you now make it better, you simplify it, you automate it, you, you uh, change some of the things that make that job hard, uh, how can we make that significantly more effective, uh, increase the performance of that individual in that job to be done more effectively? That is the design aspect that we extract from that human factors problem. So identify the bottlenecks, identify the inefficiencies in what is done today, take that customer journey and optimize that job to be done through the course of design. And through the course of design, ask a set of what if problems um, what if we could apply an AI algorithm to do this thing that requires some amount of sensory intelligence perhaps, or analytical intelligence, but largely is something that can be learned with a corpus of data that we can collect or already have access to. And now by virtue of us automating that that sensory action or that sort of analytical action, can short circuit this process, this workflow that this individual is engaged in and give them that time necessary to either do things faster, do things earlier. And if it's a risk mitigation solution, giving them a greater runway to respond appropriately to that risk. Right. I I find early in our days when we were designing our products, I I did a very similar thing. I went out, I sat side by side with customers and I I think about as customer empathy. And there's things that happen on the ground at the location when that whether it's a security professional or guest services or whomever it is, is interacting with their visitor. And it's, you, you can't just take a picture of it. You can't just write it down. There's an emotional thing. There's, 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 there's something more there and you have to yep. be at the site and feel it. You need to be talking to the security professional 45 minutes after they've been having screening people coming in and they're tired yes. and they're fingers tired of holding the button down on the hand wand because they've been doing it for 45 minutes, right? And those are the things that in a straight, a traditional survey or question and answer, you're not going to get insight into that. But when you put yourself there in their shoes and have that level of customer empathy, you really understand some of the more visceral areas to create value. And I think that's where I see a lot of adoption at a human level taking place. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've talked to lots of uh, physical security customers where, you know, in some ways they describe part of their job as long periods of uh, boredom uh, with uh, moments of terror. Uh, right. So it's like it is one of those things where uh, when they have, do have to respond and react in some way. Uh, it is a stressful situation. The, the time window required to react uh, ends up being very short. There's a decision that needs to be taken within that time window. Uh, and the cognitive aperture tends to uh, reduce very rapidly in those times of stress. And so when you have an, uh, a tool that you're offering them and you want to figure out what that tool is to simplify that their life, it is that making sure that the data that they are able to decide used to make a decision is, is really and truly something that they can consume with that reduced cognitive aperture without distraction. And it's something that actually leads to good decisions ultimately for that. Right. Now, you were talking about the um, building technology to address some of the work that's being done by these people. 
One yeah. thing that I find interesting is it's, it's fairly straightforward to automate something, but to go a step or two further, right, into something that may not be articulated by a customer's need or maybe so, vis, you know, so visible, I think yeah. is, is courageous and necessary. And certainly in the productization that you've led over the years, you've done that, right? There's a lot of products that were first of. So how, yeah. how do you figure out how much further to push it and that that does align with with where the customer is going to need to be or would want to be. Uh, yeah, so like I think a, a lot of it is uh, is figuring out the changing landscape of uh, the job that that customer is engaged in, um, uh, and the job that that customer is engaged in today is going to change one way or the other over the coming years. And I think what we want to optimize for is where that, 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 that job is going, but really align that with what is the changing nature of tools available to, to, to help that person do their job, right? And, and uh, oftentimes those two are, are thought of separately and they really aren't that separate. Uh, uh, and I think you, you need an understanding of the, uh, of the customer, uh, understanding of the job that they're doing. Uh, and you also need the understanding of where technology is going. Um, I think uh, 10 years ago, if you had talked about a lot of the AI algorithms that are available today to, to automate a lot of uh, decision tasks, uh, a lot of the analytics that are available today, the performance probably would have been one where People said, eh, not necessarily, not, not really useful to do. Perhaps the cost is uh, not at the right place, uh, et cetera. But I think by tracking the, 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 the future of where technology is going, we were able to start thinking about, okay, there is going to come a time where if we meet these types of performance criteria and this type of cost criteria, then applying that tool to simplify the user problem or even change the nature of what that person does Right. Previously, they might have been spending a lot of time doing something, but that something is not uh, doesn't really deserve their intelligence. They doesn't really deserve their attention. They could be doing something else. The changing nature of their jobs is actually enabled with technology overall to make the things that they need to do, the overall objective of what they need to achieve. In many cases, security, it's not really effective response that's the core objective. It is prevention. Right. Yeah. You want to prevent that bad outcome in the first place. And ultimately, we're, we're see, the, the, the customer role change, I think, at, uh, going into the uh, future with physical security is less about how do you not how you investigate, how do you effectively investigate after the event has happened? It is about how do you uh, uh, respond immediately uh, to, uh, to mitigate the risk effectively. But now increasingly, how do you take steps so that you can prevent that bad outcome in the first place? And the job role is changing and we're effectively leveraging AI, leveraging tools, leveraging product sensing modalities, new sensing modalities to really move that job from investigation to prevention across right. that continuum. Right, right. So so we can flip the balance from response and react to more prevention, right? That's and right. That, that shifts a little bit in using technology to do that. So certainly in the last eight or 10 months with COVID and all that's, all the impact it's had on people and the economy and businesses and locations and schools, um, there's been certain trends that I'm sure have come out of that, right? As you've sort of thought about, um, where to go, as you're, you're saying, with new products, what are some of the trends you've seen that have come out of the current environment that make you think about security and technology and products in the future a little bit differently? Um, 
I'd say the the first couple of trends are are, are not not uh, I think would not be news to the majority of, of the audience. The, the the first couple of trends are there is more of the watching and the observation that is now going into the realm of uh, AI doing that job versus humans doing that job. The second is, I think, uh, uh, the nature of the sensor modalities that are available today. Uh, I think when we started our conversation here and we were talking about big data in particular, it's volume, velocity, variety. Uh, and that last part, variety, when it comes to physical security, is really starting to increase in, this, in the sense that it's not just cameras, it's not just motion detectors, it's not uh, just a metal detector. It is more than that. Uh, thing. Uh, sensing modalities that give you richer information, but the variety of sensing modalities when you combine some of these technologies to, together ends up becoming a more powerful solution. Uh, and I think that is a key trend on, on the sensing side that's progressing. The, the, the third trend is really all of this really connected, uh, uh, cloud connected in, in many ways. And it's not the cloud that's the buzzword in that, in, in that scenario. It is really giving customers without giving them the burden of having hosting infrastructure locally, giving them the benefit of all the processing that they would need uh, to run capabilities, to get insights, to get uh, the, the performance out of the system by combining this variety of data sources to solve whatever problem that they're trying to solve. So if it's prevention uh, for physical security, it is being able to integrate all this, this information, both. Uh, endogenously within the facility and exogenously from outside the facility, all in service of making sure that their risk is reduced. That connectivity, the uh, accumulation, aggregation of information, the processing of it to make sure the lens of, of the security lens of that particular customer is now uh, put in place and, and the right people are alerted or notified or brought into the loop to to uh, become part of that risk mitigation process. That cloud connectivity is, I'd say, the third really significant trend that's happening here. And the fourth trend uh, that I think becomes quite interesting here as well is, is sort of dovetails on the, uh, on the last one and benefits from the first two, uh, is that historically, when you th thought of physical security, whether it's CCTV, whether, uh, whether it's access control, CCTV, the, the very acronym is closed circuit uh, uh, television, right? It's, uh, uh, it is really islands of information, islands of sensing that operated independently from each other. Um, those islands are disappearing. And along with those islands, the, the interconnected web of, uh, of sensing in service to whatever job that, that, that our customers are trying to do, that web is now bridging between the private and the public side of the world. So public safety is becoming more tightly integrated with, with private uh, security, uh, enterprise security. And when you bring those two things together, your entire response workflow and your prevention workflow uh, and even your evidentiary workflow after the fact all become highly optimized uh, with people, human intelligence applied more appropriately on things that really deserve human intelligence and all with the hope of now creating a better situation, a better, uh, better risk outcome for our customers. Interesting. And so we have these four trends and, and areas of technology development. As we think about a venue and sort of bring it down to a threshold or an area. Yeah. Um, what's happening there? So we've had access control for a while. We've had identity solutions for a while. 
Uh, we've had certainly metal detectors for a while, but what's, what's happening at that level? What are the changes you're seeing sort of at the customer at the threshold? Yeah, so I, I think like um, uh, even um, probably the, the thing that's top of mind to everybody is COVID these days, right? So uh, it's like pre-COVID and post-COVID is probably the, 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 the two eras or epochs that uh, we can think about. Pre-COVID, um, it was all about getting customers from one side of the venue to the other side of the venue uh, where they could enjoy the venue, uh, improve customer experience, uh, improve user experience uh, within the venue most effectively while making sure that they're safe, while making sure that they're secure. Uh, and so it was really making sure that, that you're not creating bottlenecks, you're not creating um, uh, situations where uh, people are frustrated waiting in long lines. Um, Post-COVID, it's all about, uh, in addition to that, uh, in addition to all the, uh, the security and the safety concerns, it's also about making sure that you're creating frictionless, touchless uh, experiences. It is about making sure that you're not creating a circumstance where people are congregating where it is unsafe uh, to congregate, uh, where you're solving one security problem um, but at the same time, creating another one uh, as a consequence. So I'd say that's uh, that's the first bit is, is this notion that I think, uh, along with this notion that you need a high throughput solution, uh, uh, the threshold cannot become a bottleneck. Uh, increasingly, it is also uh, about making sure that there is this the safety element of it, where you're not sacrificing in venue security for out of venue risk. Uh, so, uh, like I'd say, that that's the first point. And the second so, is like, uh, if I could just stop you, and I think you've used the term context before, right? Which yes. is a really interesting way to sort of frame that up. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So that that was going to be the second thing that I was get, uh, getting at is that is this notion that uh, historically access control or, or or security at the threshold was a function of identity, yeah. right? Who are you? And if depending upon who you are. And, and by the way, who are you could be, do I have a ticket to enter this venue or not, as well as, uh, you know, I, I am Mahesh. Uh, and the, the, uh, the other aspect is, what am I carrying? And if I'm carrying something that I'm not supposed to bring into the venue, or even the opposite, car carrying something that I need to bring into the venue. Uh, so those are the two, two elements here. But where, where access control and access is evolving to is identity plus context, uh, where it's not just important that, that I am Mahesh, uh, but it may also be important as to my, perhaps my history, my background. Uh, uh, am I coming in here with a, with a weapon uh, potentially? And uh, th that's, that could be potentially problematic. Uh, am I coming here while running a fever? Uh, th that could be problematic. Am I coming here knowing that I'm COVID positive? Uh, uh, th that's potentially a problem. Uh, am I coming in here uh, while there's a bolo? Uh, that is out for me. Uh, all of those things are context to me. It's not, I, the identity is verified. I may have every right to enter the facility if this additional context were, did not exist. But ultimately, from, a, from a, uh, a security standpoint, it is something that you want to have that additional context in association with your identity to, to sort of improve the security posture. But not just the security posture, I think that context also helps to personalize the service that you may get when you enter the venue. Uh, and with you can do this in a very sort of privacy conscious uh, and responsible way because all of us carry 
phones in our pockets with apps and effectively have this token that we can interact at the threshold with to say, ah, I'm going to opt into certain personalized services or I'm not going to opt into that cert- those personalized services. So the threshold now acts as this convergence point for me to, ex- uh, to sort of communicate my interests to the venue as I'm going in, including my uh, uh, opt-in or opt-out to whatever data I would like to share to get those personal personalized services as well. So that's, I think, the other aspect of, uh, of this. So it's really this identity plus context, which is the evolution of access into a facility, not just necessarily access control, but, but access with all the services that that access provides us with. Yeah, and I think that we're, he- we're starting to hear a lot more about that relative to the vaccine, right? Are you, yeah. have you been vaccinated, right? There's gonna yeah. be, a, you know, is vaccinated, is not vaccinated, have and have not. I, yes. You can see that at least over the next year, um, For sure. you know, and maybe even beyond that. So really interesting. And then the other question is, um, we were talking about technology and the impact of people. People wear lots of different hats. Right, something that I, I I've heard you talk a little bit about was this app, this idea of distributing security or distributed security. Right, it's not necessarily yep. just the guard at the door doing that thing. Can you just talk about sort of how you think about that and what you see out there? Yeah, so I, I you know, I think um, as we started off talking about, we're we're entering this event-driven world, um, and uh, in part we're entering this event-driven world because the days of somebody sitting in front of a security operations center watching a video wall, uh, hoping that they can detect something that is potentially uh, suspicious or requires attention. I think those days are, are, are starting to reduce, especially in the context of, of COVID now where you don't want all those people sitting together in a security operations center in the first place, right? Uh, not to mention that that tends to be a bit in, ineffective. Uh, uh, but increasingly, that role of a person um, sitting in a security operations center has, has been historically part of uh, a certain customer group who have had a high risk profile associated with them. But even customers with a slightly lower risk profile, that risk may be lower, relatively speaking, but is still pretty high. Uh, but those customers don't necessarily have a security operations center. They don't have people sitting in front of a desk specifically looking to see whether something requires attention and acting as a dispatcher to dispatch people uh, to, to go investigate or do something. Rather, the, the, that, that role of that dispatcher and the role of the person on the ground is being combined. Um, and these are people who are not sitting behind a desk, rather people who are actually walking around the facility, perhaps doing other things as well, in addition to monitoring the facility as part of their job. And for them, uh, really, the security task tends to be interrupt-driven. It's event-driven. It's it's this notion that we talked about before, where someone taps them on the shoulder and says, "Hey, pay attention to this. There's something here that's important that's potentially happening." And that distributed nature uh, of of uh, uh, modern security, physical security, stems from that uh, that modality. Where now, I have a few people now on the ground trying to respond to whatever is happening. There's a tap on the shoulder that says, pay attention to this. Now there has to be a communication, a collaboration between all these people who are distributed along the facility, perhaps with different levels of competence, di- different levels of skills, uh, whether it is someone who's responsible for the facility, someone who's responsible for security, someone who's responsible for customer service, uh, some, someone else who's responsible for some other aspect of how some problem needs to be addressed uh, with. And so I think the collaboration between them 
where in a distributed way they can share information effectively, look at information effectively, focus their attention and handle that problem. That is the modern distributed approach to security, that trend that we're seeing out there uh, across multiple customers of ours today. Right, so an area where I think context and distributed security are particularly interesting and close to many of us is schools, right? I think yeah. the, the characteristics of, let's call it the K to 12 schools, it leads to your, or feeds those two trends. What yeah. are you seeing in terms of schools and how they're thinking about keeping safe, keeping secure? And you know, now you layer COVID and in-person and at home and hybrid, which you're dealing with, I'm dealing with, so many parents are dealing with, but how yeah. do you think about um, schools as we sort of, as they reopen more sort of into next year and how they can think about the using technology and these trends to make their better, safer places to be and for our kids to learn? Uh, absolutely. I think so. So for one, uh, schools have always been con uh, concerned about safety. Uh, I think gun violence has been something that's been top of mind, increasingly top of mind for a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, our, our school districts and, and school customers of ours. Um, and what, what COVID has done is it, it has sort of put a spotlight on, on the things that the, the instrumentation that has gone into schools to, to help with security, but created this new problem now where it's created bottlenecks, uh, where uh, egress, uh, ingress paths into the school uh, have been um, uh, something that creates crowds. There are more people standing around. And not only that, I think, uh, there's this notion uh, where uh, when people now enter the facility, as students go into the facility, as you're trying to maintain things like social distancing, uh, as you're trying to uh, ensure things like people are wearing masks, et cetera, and communicating that information appropriately to, to school administrators, to school resource officers, uh, we get back into this, this notion that there is this um, um, uh, the, con the, the context piece of it, uh, and also this distributed job function in the schools where the, the distributed job is really between the school administrators and the school resource officers. So when something happens, I think, A, you, wa you want uh, security to be pushed as far out into the perimeter as possible, uh, uh, be able to detect things that you historically were, were, were focused on detecting, like guns, like sort of uh, uh, who is this individual? Are there people trying to enter the facility who are not supposed to be in the facility? Is it an authorized visitor to the school that is actually allowed? These are all things that need, needs to be checked right at the perimeter. So background, uh, schools often do background checks on, on visitors as they're coming in uh, as well. All of this needs to happen right at the perimeter. But once you're within the perimeter, uh, you also want to now understand uh, in the context of COVID, in the context of safety applications, are, are there is there a congregation of people that is uh, that is uh, out of the norm, out of policy? Is there are we creating um, new uh, fresh problems with uh, uh, with interactions between uh, students without masks, etc. That may be a concern. Those events then need to be communicated effectively in real time to the school resource officers, to the school administrators, so they can actually do something about it. And ultimately, even in schools. We see this trend towards um, if you give students the right pieces of information uh, through dashboards, through uh, occupancy, give them a nudge to say, hey, in this portion uh, of the building, uh, there are way more people here than they really should be. Uh, or 
hey, you need to maintain more for distance. And, and, and it's something that's very clearly visual, red, and, red or green or yellow in terms of the states uh, of that area. People tend to self-regulate. Yeah. Uh, and I think ultimately you want to make everybody part of the uh, of the security and the safety story. Uh, and again, that adds another layer of the distributed security responsibility uh, framework. And ultimately, I think what we're seeing collectively here across our customers is how do we now effectively take the feet on the ground and have them be more effective than ever before and empower everybody, the people using the facility and the people responsible for the facility, how do you uh, empower all of them together to improve security and safety in the facility? Yeah, uh, interesting. So I do not have a good transition to the next topic, but the next topic is, will be interesting. Um, the other piece I'd like to spend a few minutes with is about um, the fusion or intersection of physical and cyber. And I think one very recent example, and, and certainly in the news quite a bit, is the election, the recent sure. presidential election. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how you think about physical and cyber relative to the, the, the election and, and the voting that was done, and then we can draw that out more into you know venues. But I, the election is still top of top of mind and top of the news for so many. So we, we can't we can't go through the hour without talking about it a little bit. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think um, where, where I think cybersecurity and physical security intersect, at least one point of intersection is identity, uh, right? It's like everything that we do when it comes to elections or everything when we do, do when it comes to a person getting access to a facility, depends upon verification of whether that person is who they say they are or not. Uh, and I think ultimately a, a lot of argument about today's elections really stems from the fact that there is no trust that the, the verification step is happening appropriately. Uh, I think ultimately um, where we would like to go uh, both with both physical and cybersecurity here is, is the, the return to trust. Uh, where people feel confident that when they say who they are and they enter the facility as, as that individual who they say they are, there's trust, uh, there is a clearly verifiable trust that, that that is in fact a true statement and, and they're able to go forward. Um, and I think with election security today, a lot of good things were already done. I think the, the issue uh, is, is is less about the possibility of there being a cybersecurity risk, which I which I don't want to diminish. I think there's any internet connected system uh, is hackable. The cybersecurity risk persists, but the re issue really is an imbalance between that risk and the trust that that risk exists. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think those two are not appropriately matched. When we talk about the convergence between physical and cybersecurity here, then uh, a lot of it I think has to do again from start starts from that identity problem. When we think about access control uh, as one example of, uh, in the realm of physical security where, where identity plays a very important part, today we think about access control as being able to enter a facility or not. That, that's, the, that's the access control problem. But as we go into the future, as technologies such as indoor location services, as identity verification at the perimeter, as the, the digital threshold itself evolves where now I fingerprint individuals coming into the facility, access control can, can turn from macro to micro, macro being the venue, but micro being services within that venue that they can get access to. Uh, 
And I think at that level, you're authenticating into that service. And when you authenticate into that service, uh, you are able to consume that, uh, that, that service more effectively. This is where I think physical helps cyber because today a lot of cybersecurity risks are actually posed as a consequence of uh, social engineering risks, posed as a consequence of uh, 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 insider threats uh, where people, once they enter uh, a facility, once they enter a building, are able to do things that they really should not be uh, able to do. That is the insider threat aspect of things. Uh, and some of it is also a consequence of social engineering. That's where physical security, I think, helps as we go from the macro to the micro uh, level of, of access control. I think more broadly, there's plenty of things in physical security that also benefit from, from cybersecurity. A lot of the anomaly detection capabilities uh, within the cybersecurity framework, threats in cybersecurity often act as a leading indicator of what may happen within the facility from a physical risk standpoint. So I think that can, there's a virtuous connection, uh, a relationship between what happens in the cyber world, detected threats there, and how that can potentially feed into a different sort of readiness, uh, preparation for risk within the physical world. And similarly, anomalies and threats that perhaps are observed in the physical world can also feed into potentially uh, what needs to be done in the cyber world to give better context. And we get, come back to this word context again, where again, with that identity, with the nature of that risk, the additional context that is present, physical where there's a cyber context associated with it, cyber where there's a physical context associated with it, helps us more dynamically change and define the nature of the risk that we need to, to filter, uh, to, to identify, and then propagate to the right set of humans who to look at it and investigate with the right chance of data to understand the disposition of the event and also respond to it appropriately. Interesting, interesting. This has been such a good conversation, Mahesh. If I think about, you know, 50 minutes ago when we started, we were talking about tech, after the biology and vaccine discussion, <laughs> getting out of the wet lab, uh, we were talking about these various technologies, AI and big data and analytics, and, and more interestingly, sort of how they apply to people, right? How they can augment people. And yeah. then you sharing how you turn technologies into products, like how you are out shadowing jobs and people and understanding at a very visceral level what they do and how to improve it. And then maybe how to think about the path of technology and the path of their roles and how do we sort of pick a point in the future and develop something that can help that, which was very interesting. And then a bit of this discussion on context and distributed security as trends we're seeing out there. Uh, and then recently just talking about fiber, uh, cyber and, and physical coming together. So we have a lot of people interested um, in security and guest services. They're running venues, they're running schools and stadiums. Can you bottom line it for them? So how should they think as they think, uh, you know, Monday morning, right? How do they think about this conversation in the context of what they're doing first for their venue? Um, and then we'll follow it up and I'm interested in how they should think about it individually, but how do they think about this 50 minutes of sort of rich discussion and what do they do on Monday morning? So that's a really good question. Uh, the, one of the things that I've heard from, uh, from a lot of our customers, uh, or at least observed as we have talked, is uh, physical security is often, uh, the design of a physical security approach often is, is, a, is built upon a set of data that tends to be stale, assumptions that are made that are potentially stale. The, a lot of it is stale data that is gathered from locations, areas that are 
uh, blind otherwise, so that are not instrumented, that are not uh, uh, necessarily something you have direct visibility to, including things like occupancy, including things like flow, et cetera. Um, Monday morning, I think the question you want to ask is, what are my assumptions in, in, in the security posture that uh, I've taken so far? What, what are the assumptions made in terms of the nature of threats that I need to, to look at? And what, what is the, uh, what is the uh, goodness of that, that data that led to those assumptions? What, is, what are the goodness of the, those assumptions themselves? Uh, are, are those assumptions blind spots uh, where uh, I don't have an opportunity to periodically check those? Because those assumptions ultimately end up changing the nature of what needs to be done uh, in terms of the security measures, the risk pro, uh, posture, et cetera, that you need to put in place. So it's really questioning very regularly, and also perhaps on Monday, uh, questioning very regularly, uh, what, is, what are my blind spots and what are the core assumptions that are being made in the design of, of some sort of process? And are those assumptions valid? And how often do those assumptions potentially change uh, so that I need to instrument that better where potentially something that's more of a continuous improvement framework is better than, than a framework that is based upon uh, static assumptions ma uh, made for a long period of time. It's almost like an agile mentality versus a waterfall mentality in, in uh, development. Precisely, yes. Yeah, good. And then for the individual, so we have a, a, a wide array of professionals here that, are, that every day are trying to keep their venue, their staff, their visitors safe, or they're trying to improve the services and experience as yes. individual professionals, maybe Saturday morning when they wake up, how do they think about continuing to develop their skills, their understanding, their experience to, to themselves be tooled for this world that, that's unfolding in front of us? Uh, I, I think um, a big change that is happening is the democratization of exogenous information. And by that, I mean, everything from, from crime reports to, uh, to uh, population statistics, to activity statistics across a, a large geography outside your venue, but perhaps pertinent to your venue, a lot of that tends to, is now available uh, readily. Uh, and in fact, available via APIs, available via a lot of ways where you can automatically consume that. That can feed into your risk analysis. So I think that the, the the key personal task uh, that, that I've always tried to spend a little bit of time on, and I can't say that I'm, I'm an expert in that area at all, but uh, is understanding how to now take into account these new sources of information in better understanding my own level of risk, uh, uh, risk for the venue, risk for the job that's to be done. How do I now create a framework where I can, I can somewhat algorithmically even uh, look at these data sources and, and map those data sources and the information it contains into some set of actionable things that uh, are proportional to the risk that the data indicates. Yeah, interesting. Very, very helpful to give us things to think about, you know, as we think about our own roles going forward. So Mahesh, I want to thank you very much. This has been very interesting. We've covered a lot of ground here, but I think we've, we've, there's a lot of things to think about uh, out of this. It really, you know, even for me, I, as I think about the conversations I have with customers and people out there and them trying to keep people safe and make their experiences more enjoyable. And certainly as economies reopen and businesses reopen, it will happen, right? It, it, it's a little tough right now, but we will get to that point. Um, these are some really interesting things to think about how to use technology to make the everything 
better, make their the role of the security professionals better, the, the visitor experience better, sort of across the board. So thank you for, for your time and more importantly, sharing your insights. And thank you for having me. This is a wonderful conversation. Great. And for each of you, I'd like to thank you for the work you're doing to keep people safe, to keep their experiences pleasant and frictionless. And in, hopefully we're inspiring you to think about new things uh, as you think about your venues and your role going forward. Thank you. Thank you.